Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the laws in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who stirred who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who also were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, 
well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Paul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Thank you. Uh, thank you for reading for us, Norm. Um, if you want to keep that scripture passage open, we're going to be diving into that together, and then you can find some space for notes on page four, as well as some things to discuss together after the service as well. But before we do that, why don't we turn to the Lord and ask for his help? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for, uh, for these words. Thank you that you've breathed these things out to us, that we have not just, uh, not just the history of these events, but also your interpretation of them. You've given us your word to understand what they mean and their significance to us. And so we pray today that you'd help us to understand, uh, help us to apply these things to our own lives and situation. And we, uh, we pray for your grace to be with us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I said the theme of our service is, is God's life-changing power. When I first came to the States, I made two life-changing discoveries. Um, the first was cable TV. Um, the second was back-to-back -back episodes of the show Law and Order. And now I said it was life-changing, not that it changed my life for the better. Uh, this was before the days of Netflix, of course, where you can just watch shows on autoplay. You can kind of binge watch. Uh, it, it was even better than that. You didn't even need autoplay because the TV producers had done it for you just endlessly on the same channel. And now, for those of you who don't know the show, which may be some of uh, the younger members amongst you, um, it was basically a, a, a kind of a police show and a crime, uh, a crime drama and a, a legal drama combined into one. Uh, the police would solve the crime, and then they would hand it over to the district attorney who would then prosecute this in the courts. And uh, probably the only thing that show accomplished was to give the average American a distorted view of law enforcement and the legal system. Uh, but what do we uh, have, what does any of that have to do with our text today? Well, uh, thankfully what we're reading here isn't fiction, it's fact, but it, it does represent the Bible's answer to law and order. Uh, we have an attack, uh, we have an arrest, uh, we see a kind of trial here as Paul stands in the dock and presents uh, the answer to these false accusations that have been brought against him. Yeah, and there is a pattern here. Law and Order was always a very formulaic show, if you've seen it. But, uh, but the pattern that we find here isn't, isn't just a formula. It is a real-life pattern that has been experienced by Christian believers down the ages. And in the next few moments, I want us to briefly unpack that pattern and apply it to ourselves. 
that we might not experience exactly what Paul experiences with the same intensity, but following Jesus will always bring with it a certain measure of opposition in a similar way to the way that we see in these verses. And so what I want us to see is four things. We're going to trace these few, uh, these through. We're going to look at the false accusation in verses uh, 27 through 29 of chapter 1, uh, the false accusation. Uh, then we're going to look at the fierce attack in verses 30 through 31, as Paul, uh, even his life is threatened because of this false accusation against him. And then we're going to have a twist. We're going to see the fortunate arrest, the fortunate arrest that takes place in verses 32 through 36. And then finally, we see a fitting answer, a fitting answer in 2137 down to chapter 22, verse 21. And so let's look at the false accusation first. False accusations, that's our first point. And what I'm referring to are the vicious lies spread about Paul in verses 27 and 28. Take a look down um, at those verses. Now remember, Paul has just gone out of his way to quash the rumors that were spread about him last week. But now look at what he's dealing with, even as he's there cleansing himself in the temple. It's there in verse 27. When the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him and crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and this place. And now these Jews from Asia were likely visiting because Paul is there during the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, Asia is the region where Paul had previously been ministering in in the last few years, there in the region that is now modern Turkey. Uh, And now the Jews from that region uh, are visiting the city, are beginning to raise questions, questioning Paul's teaching throughout that region in particular. Uh, He's teaching everyone everywhere. It's kind of an implicit recognition of the impact of Paul, isn't it? Uh, But what is he teaching? Well, he's teaching everyone everywhere against the people, uh, against the law, and also against this place, referring to the temple. Uh, Now, there's a threefold accusation, isn't there? Uh, Paul is undermining God's holy people, the Jews. Uh, He's undermining God's holy precepts, the law, particularly the law of Moses given in the Scriptures. Uh, And he's, he's defying God's holy place. He's defying the temple. Uh, In fact, they even accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the inner courts of the temple, something that was really unforgivable in that context. Uh, And yet, if you know your Bible, you know these three things they accuse Paul of are hardly small things. In one sense, the whole Bible is really about this. It's about God gathering a people, bringing those people into his chosen place, uh, and ruling over them according to his law, his word. Uh, Essentially, uh, what they're claiming is this, that that what God is for, Paul is against. Paul is opposing God. Paul is an enemy of God. Uh, and they, they bring this idea of him bringing the gentle into the temple. That, that's kind of the proof. And yet, clearly, these accusations are false. They're made up. They don't have any proof at all. In fact, verse 29 tells us all of this was based on, on a supposition, based on speculation. Uh, but that doesn't stop the crowds. In fact, if you've been tracking through Acts, you'll know this particular group of Jews has been following Paul everywhere, stirring up false accusations against him. Uh, and yet, uh, the crowd seem to be stirred up, don't they? Uh, the temple we then find, uh, and then the whole city begins to be stirred up. This kind of a riot, a mob uh, begins to form. Chaos ensues. Uh, and listen, what we need to understand is this, that, that false accusations against Christians will always come. 
In fact, we've already seen this in Acts. Maybe as we read this, as you heard it read, you, the, the bells were beginning to ring. Doesn't this sound exactly what we read about just a few weeks ago, about what took place in the city of Ephesus? Uh, there it wasn't the Jewish temple. It was actually the pagans, the idolaters, who were, who were stirring up uh, the people against Paul. Uh, Christianity is bad for business. That's what they said. Uh, that was a secular concern about the Christian faith. Uh, the claim was that Christianity stands in the way of progress, that the Christianity is somehow a, a social concern. But notice how the concern here isn't secular in that way. Uh, no, the concern here is much more religious. Uh, it isn't just the pagans who have a problem with Paul. In fact, it turns out Paul really has nowhere to turn. Uh, the religious establishment in Jerusalem uh, oppose him as well. In fact, uh, we've seen this consistently throughout the book of Acts. Uh, what we read here should ring some other bells too. It, it sounds very much like the stoning of Stephen in, in Acts chapter 6. Uh, when Stephen was stoned, what did they accuse him of? Well, uh, they said this, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Uh, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and against the law. He's speaking against God's people. He's speaking against God's precepts. He's speaking against God's place. Uh, and in fact, consider for a moment, isn't this exactly the problem that they had with Jesus? Uh, he's breaking the Sabbath laws. He's undermining the importance of the temple. Uh, at his trial, we see these very same things come out. Uh, and all of this, I, I think, helps us understand how we should approach Acts chapter 21. Uh, this isn't just a one-off event. No, no, this is a pattern. False accusations are par for the course if you want to follow the Lord Jesus. Uh, and similarly, these accusations will often come from an unlikely place. Uh, preach the gospel of Christ, and it isn't just pagans or secular people who will give you a hard time for it. No, often we find opposition comes from very religious people, uh, people who claim to serve God. Uh, people who are part of the, the religious establishment, just like the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, people who perhaps even claim to be faithful followers of Christ. I mean, aren't evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, often accused of, of being against God, actually standing for the very things uh, that God is against and, and being against the very things that God is for? Uh, God is a God of love, isn't he? Uh, and so what do you evangelicals think about the fact that you're a bunch of bigots? Uh, don't evangelicals oppose love? For example, we oppose the love that other people have for one another in, in the context of same-sex marriage. And don't evangelicals claim that, that God is a God of justice, that he's a God of, uh, of justice and peace, and so why aren't we doing what we can for justice within the world? And if we believe God is just, how can we believe in the cross? The very idea of the cross is unjust, that God would punish an innocent victim. Uh, the point I'm making is that these false accusations are common, uh, and where they come from is quite common as well. Uh, throughout the history of the church, we often find the, the religious establishment, surprisingly, is, is very much against Christianity. Uh, and so Paul is falsely accused uh, by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, this false accusation, that's the first thing we see. Uh, but things move on from that, and they move on pretty fast. Things begin to ex escalate, and so uh, we move on from the, the false accusations to this fierce attack. Uh, we read of that fierce attack in verse 30. Uh, verse 30. Uh, then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Uh, they thought that Paul had desecrated the temple, and so that they want to get him out of there. 
But verse 31 is very clear about the intention of this crowd. The reason they drag him off isn't just so they can kind of uh, have a word. No, they drag him off so they can kill him. They're looking for blood. And this really makes sense, or it would have made sense at the time. Uh, Desecrating the temple was a big deal, especially during this, this great religious feast. It was Pentecost, and if Paul had brought this uh, Gentile into the inner courts, it would really spoil the feast. It would have to be cleansed. It would have to be reset up. It would have to get ready for, again, for all of the guests. It's kind of like your sewer deciding to back up. Uh, Your sewer decides to back up, but it doesn't just do it at any time. It does it right when the family are coming over for Thanksgiving. Uh, This is what this is like. Paul has defiled the temple, except this is worse. This is a deliberate act by Paul, or, or so it is thought. Defiling the temple in Israel's law was a capital offense. But notice how they don't bring Paul to be tried before the Jewish council. Paul doesn't have a chance to defend himself against these attacks. No, it's like we're reading more of a lynching than the judicial process. And listen, this is what many brothers and sisters in the world will face today. I think about a story I read about an Iranian Christian He was accused of blaspheming God for worshipping Jesus Christ, uh, and they didn't wait around for a trial. Uh, Well, thankfully, though, they didn't kill him. Instead, they exiled him. They cut him off from his family. They put him away from his children. Uh, Fortunately, most of us will not face death or exile today, and yet serving Christ can bring fierce attacks. It can lead to false accusations that ruin your career. Uh, It can lead to a kind of social exile as people attack our character or undermine our reputation. And again, this is really what it means to follow Christ. As Paul would write later to Timothy, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ will face persecution. Uh, Jesus himself said in in Matthew uh, chapter 5 verse 11, and I I wonder if Paul had these verses in his mind. Uh, Jesus says this, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, This is a pattern that goes back to Christ himself, but it's even a pattern that goes back all the way to the Old Testament. And maybe you're taking a stand for Christ right now, and and you can associate with what I'm saying. Uh, Maybe in just a small way you're trying to to stand with Christ, and yet you're facing pushback uh, from friends, from family, from colleagues, from neighbors. Uh, Maybe you're tempted just to kind of go quiet, not to say much at all. Uh, Maybe you're facing pushback not from them. Maybe you're facing pushback from people in the church, religious people, hopefully not this church, uh, but church people, people who claim to be Christians. Uh, they're the very ones who, who falsely accuse you. You feel attacked by them. And if so, well, remember these words of blessing from Jesus. Blessed are you when others revile you. Rejoice and be glad for your reward will be great in heaven. And that is how Paul uh, could sustain himself through this attack. Uh, I mean, but let's get back to Paul. It doesn't look good for him, does it? Especially when we realize this is the pattern that took place with Jesus and then also with Stephen. Uh, At this point, I think we could say this looks like the end of the road for Paul. Uh, And that would be really tragic, wouldn't it? After working so hard to preach Christ all around the world, uh, to return home, and having returned home, to go out of his way to be well-received. I mean, remember why Paul is in the temple in the first place. He's there to be purified according to God's law. He's there at, at the wishes of the elders who want him to build this bridge to the Jewish community. 
and yet uh, to be killed simply because of false accusations. And yet, thankfully, this isn't the end. If it was, uh, then we wouldn't have had one of my favorite books in the Bible, Paul's letter to, uh, second letter to Timothy, but thankfully he's preserved, and so we do have that book today. Uh, God preserved Paul. Uh, and yet, the way he does it is quite surprising, perhaps even astonishing. And so, having looked at the false accusations and, and the ensuing fierce attack, let's move on to consider the fortunate arrest of Paul, his fortunate arrest. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, Paul is arrested, and, and really, his arrest turns out to be the very best news. Uh, look down with me at verse 31. Uh, and as they were seeking to kill Paul, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And now the tribune here would have been a military commander. A man we find out later is called Claudius Lysias, uh, probably in charge of a, a cohort of uh, 600 to 1,000 men. Uh, he would have been situated in the Antonia Fortress that was right across from the temple in Jerusalem. It's interesting that the, the Roman soldiers didn't put their main garrison in Jerusalem by the temple. That would have been kind of a bit of a fierce attack. Uh, no, but they did station some soldiers just within a view so they could make sure they stayed on top of what happened there. And, uh, and Paul must have been glad they did, because uh, look at verse 32. Uh, having received news about this disturbance... Uh, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And then he inquired who he was and what he had done. Uh, he got there in the nick of time, didn't he? Uh, they were about to beat Paul to death in the temple, and, which is a little bit ironic, isn't it? Because they're accusing Paul of defiling the temple, and yet they're going to kill him right there. And yet this is the twist, isn't it? We find it's the pagan Roman who intervenes, who enters the temple courts and actually protects him. And there's another irony as well, isn't there? Because prophecy is being fulfilled. Just a few verses earlier, Agabus predicted this would happen. Uh, remember, he took that belt, he kind of bound his hands and, and hogtied on the floor, said, look, this is what's going to happen to Paul. He's going to arrive in Jerusalem. He's going to be bound and, and delivered over to the Gentiles. Of course, when he said that, we didn't know that was going to be good news, the best thing that could happen. The Jews bound Paul and wanted to kill him, and yet the Gentiles intervened and actually turned out to act more righteous than the Jews. That's kind of a twist, isn't it? And it highlights an underlying point in the book of Acts. It highlights, actually, an important point for all of us to understand that when it comes to the gospel, it doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from. Christ came for all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles alike. Uh, but it also highlights the fact that God often works in unusual ways. I mean, who would have thought that getting arrested would be the best thing that could happen to you? It certainly isn't on my short list of things that I want to happen to me today. And yet the Lord moves in mysterious ways, doesn't he? I suppose if you were set upon by an angry mob on the way out of church, hearing, hearing police sirens would be a welcome sound for you. Even if you were the one arrested. Even if you were the one that were, was carted away. Again, like Paul, being arrested like this is just a part of following Christ. In fact, Paul is literally following Christ here. The, the steps that he's about to be kind of dragged up on are, are the very same steps where it's likely that Pilate addressed the people and, and released to them Barabbas rather than Jesus. On that very occasion, God worked in the most unusual way of all. 
God saved the world through false accusations brought against his son. God saved the world through Jesus Christ being bound and and beaten and scourged and mocked. Jesus being crucified, dying the death of a common criminal turned out to be salvation for the world. This is how God works his salvation plan, through a cruel act. And in some ways, in a very similar way, but in a smaller way, this actually is exactly what's happening to Paul. It turns out that this is a turning point. Uh, Paul is getting arrested now, but it actually turns out this arrest is what leads Paul to his final destination. Because of this arrest, Paul will end up in Rome. This was his plan. This was God's plan all along. Although I very much doubt this is the way that Paul had planned it. His strategic planning team probably didn't count on his arrest. He probably had some other plans of how he was going to move things forward. And we so often face similar twists and turns in life, don't we? We have plans, perhaps even God-given plans, and yet we experience very similar ironies. Uh, We experience a a fortunate arrest. It sounds like a contradiction in terms, Uh, but it's just like many other things in life. Uh, God works good through things that appear to be evil. Uh, God gets us where he wants us to be in life, but he does it in ways that we don't expect. Uh, through a failed exam, uh, through, a, through a car accident, through the foolish choices we make, through uh, a terrible medical diagnosis. Uh, we often play the game of what if when these things happen, don't we? I mean, maybe Paul wondered this. What if I'd just never gone to the temple this morning? If I'd not gone, then I wouldn't have been beaten. I wouldn't have been arrested. But then at the same time, he may never have made it to Rome. God often uses surprising means. He uses terrible things. He even uses centurions, pagan Roman soldiers. God is committed to accomplishing his mission, his mission of bringing the gospel to all kinds of people. And we see this not only in these false accusations, this fierce attack, and and this, this fortunate arrest. We also see it perfectly expressed in this fitting answer, this fitting answer of Paul. The fitting answer, that's the fourth thing. Because in chapter 2, Paul gives a speech. Uh, It is actually the first of several defensive speeches that Paul will now give in the book of Acts. Uh, In fact, this seems to be something of a main theme from here on out. In fact, at this point in Acts, Paul is arrested and he will remain in chains throughout the rest of the book. Uh, And so we find these court scenes over and over again. In fact, as I said, this is kind of like the the Bible's answer to law and order. There's going to be this whole theme. Maybe it's, it's Perry Mason or something like that. It's going to be trials again and again and again. Now, chapter 22 isn't an official trial, and yet Paul does, in his own words, give a defense. We discover the Roman commander is confused about who Paul is. He doesn't even know why he arrested him. Amid the chaos, he wants to get Paul away from the crowd. He drags him into the barracks, but on the way, Paul makes this special request. On the steps of the Antonia Fortress, Paul asks for permission to address his own people. And then we get this speech. Really, it is a, a masterful defense. And, and some would even say that this does present something of a pattern for Christians. Uh, what Paul is doing here is telling his story. He's telling the story of how he came to Christ. He opens by recounting his history. It's kind of like one of the testimonies that we have here at church. He, he, he recounts his life before he knew Christ, how he persecuted the church. And then he tells of the way that he met the Lord. He was about to try and kill some Christians, and yet God intervened. God revealed himself to him on the road to Damascus. 
Uh, and then we get this other story, we don't read about it elsewhere, how Paul, after his conversion, journeyed down to Jerusalem and, uh, and he received this vision as he was in the temple, uh, spending some time in prayer. And as Paul tells this story, many would suggest, look, this is what we're supposed to do. Uh, we must give a reason for the hope that is in us, and so let's follow this example. When, when we have a chance to talk about Christ, let's, let's share our testimony. Uh, now, there is something to that. I, I think that is a good thing to do, but I, I want to suggest that that is not actually the point here. Uh, one of the reasons is this, because Paul's story is totally unique. This is not just a Christian testimony. You know, uh, this is about how Paul not just came to Christ, but also how Christ called Paul to be an apostle. Uh, we might testify to what we have seen and heard, our experience of Christ, and yet uh, Paul's role is far more significant than that. Paul had, with his own eyes, seen and heard the risen and exalted Lord. Uh, like the other 12 apostles, Paul was an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. Uh, he, together with Peter and James and John, have this foundational role within the church. Uh, we see this in John 17, where Jesus prays for the church. He prays for the apostles, yes, but, but he prays for other believers. And how does he describe us in this room today? Uh, well, he describes us in this way. Uh, people who believe in him through their words. Uh, Jesus came once and for all, and he's preserved that revelation for us here within the scriptures. And so in one sense, uh, when we're meant to give a reason for our hope, we're not actually meant to talk about what we have seen and heard. No, we're actually meant to talk about what they saw and heard. Uh, we testify to what Paul saw and heard, what the apostles saw and heard, that once for all revelation of God given through the Lord Jesus. And yet in one sense, I think Paul's speech is an example. Uh, not an example so much in its form. Uh, no, it's an example in, in, in this, in the way that Paul truly addresses the concerns of his listeners. And consider the wonder of this for a moment, actually. They have just brought this false accusation against Paul. Uh, Paul is against these three things. He's against God's holy people. He's against God's holy precepts. He's against God's holy place, the temple. Uh, and as Paul tells this story, he tells it in a particular way. He tells this story in a way that addresses each one of those particular concerns. He wants them to know that he isn't against the things that God is for. No, Jesus' work in his life actually affirms these things. Jesus doesn't undermine these things at all. Now, firstly, notice how Paul underscores this love for God's people, the Jews. I mean, he considers them his family, doesn't he? Look there at verse 1. Look at how he addresses them. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make. And we see this love, this, this love and concern for them in the very language he speaks. Verse 2, when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And then notice how Paul identifies himself in verse 3. Verse 3 tells us, Paul says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I am a Jew. Why would I be speaking against the Jews? I mean, I grew up in these very streets. He spent his most formative years in this city. Uh, and during that time, not only do we see his love for God's people, we see his love for God's word. Uh, verse 3 goes on, He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Uh, now we know from history, Gamaliel was a Pharisee, and a hardcore Pharisee at that. Uh, when it, it came to God's law, he promoted the most strict form of adherence. Uh, and notice how Paul here is affirming their zeal for God. Uh, they might have questions Paul's zeal, yes, but, but he goes on to remind them that long ago he actually stood exactly where they are. 
Uh, just as they're persecuting him, where did Paul stand? On the other side, fiercely persecuting Christians. Uh, just as they sought to kill Paul now, Paul actually was on his way to kill other followers of Jesus. I persecuted this way to the death, he says in verse 4. And yet it was amid this very thing that Paul had this first amazing encounter with Jesus. He had this vision of Christ uh, while he was on the road. Uh, we read about this before. Uh, we read about it before in Acts chapter 9. Uh, but notice the additional detail that Paul gives here. It's kind of interesting to compare the two stories and see uh, how they contrast. And there's a small point that he makes. Uh, who does he see on the road? Well, he sees Jesus, yes, but he, he describes Jesus this way. He is Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, the point, I think, is that even Jesus was a Jew. Uh, how could following this Jesus make you anti-Semitic and be against God's people? Uh, even the man, uh, the risen Lord directed Paul to, is described in a certain way in verse 12. Uh, what do we learn here about Ananias? Well, he was a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all of the Jews in that region. And how does Ananias describe God in verse 14? Well, he's the God of our fathers. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one. That phrase comes from Isaiah, the righteous one promised throughout the scriptures. In other words, what happened to me wasn't at odds with God's people or God's precepts. No, it was perfectly in accord with everything that came before. But thirdly, we also see this focus on God's place as well. Paul is for God's people. He's for God's precepts. He's for God's place. I mean, what did Paul do after he came to Christ? Look at verse 17. When he had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple. And it's actually in this very temple, the temple he's actually looking at right now across from him, where he was beaten up, where he was arrested. It was in this very temple that he received this vision of Christ, a vision telling him that he would actually experience the very thing he's experiencing now, that he wouldn't be well received by the Jews, his own, his own people, uh, that ultimately they would, they would be against him, even though he was for them. Uh, there's a lot more we could say about this, but the main point I want us to see is this, just how fitting Paul's answer is to their false accusation. Uh, even though he's been falsely accused, even though he's been fiercely attacked by these very people. Uh, the very last thing Paul does is despise them and dismiss them. I mean, just think for a moment. If you had a moment to say whatever you wanted to this crowd, what would you say in light of what they had just done to you? And yet Paul uh, responds not by condemning them, not by criticizing them, not by even calling them out for their concerns. I know he responds in a way that is faithful to Christ, yes, but at the same time, he, he's actually affirming them. He's actually endearing himself to them. And now they don't respond well. We see that in verse 22, and we'll see it next week also. But I think here there is another example, the example of Christ that is at work. What did Christ do? What does he call us to do? Well, Christ calls us to love our enemies, he calls us to pray for those who persecute us. Uh, and that's actually what Paul is doing here. Paul loves these people. Paul consider them, considers them his people. And so he doesn't just want to win an argument with them. He, he doesn't just want to do whatever it takes to get them off his back. He doesn't just want to sweet-talk his way out of prison. And no, what we find here is this, that Paul wants them to know Christ Christ, the only true Jew in one sense, the only one who faithfully obeyed God's covenant with his people. Christ, the only one who truly kept the law that they love so much. Christ, who really is the true temple. 
Christ who removed the barrier between man and God, tearing down that big curtain that stood in the way. And let me ask you this, is this what you want for the people who accuse you? Is this what you want for the people inside the church or outside the church who, who present various attacks, false attacks against Christians? Is this what we want? Is it what we pray for, for all of those godless heretics, all of those liberals? Do we love them, even when they hate us for our commitment to Christ? Do we want to see them crushed and defeated, or do we want them to become Christians? This is such a challenge. At least it is a challenge for me. And yet, is this not what Christ calls us to do? Isn't this the pattern that is set? Uh, Is this not the way to answer all of those false accusations? Uh, To answer with love and with compassion. I mean, just consider this for a moment. Uh, What do people oppose Christians for? Uh, People say that what they really want is freedom. Uh, We can explain to them how true freedom comes only in Christ. Uh, People say they want justice, but we can point out that at the cross, Christ, yes, brings justice, but also he brings forgiveness and mercy to all people. Uh, People want to know love, but there is no greater love than this, to give your life for your friends. And Jesus desires to befriend all kinds of people. In other words, we should do whatever we can to build bridges, even with people who despise us, even with people who hate us. Actually, because we used to stand where they stood. We used to oppose Jesus. And yet in his love, he came for us, he lived for us, he died for us, he rose for us. And he speaks to us now through the scriptures. And so whether we are falsely accused or or fiercely attacked or even favorably arrested for Christ... Uh, Let's find ourselves responding with the only fitting answer to point people in our words, in our deeds, uh, to the all-powerful, all-consuming love of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, so much for your grace uh, expressed in these words. Uh, Lord, thank you that uh, even in uh, even in unusual ways, in uh, unfavorable circumstances, your gospel went forward. And we thank you that the same is true today. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, as we face whatever opposition we face for our faith to respond with the same kind of grace that we see with here, here in the scriptures. But Lord, equip us, enable us to show the love of Christ as we follow him. And we pray this, uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.